The following content contains adult subject matter, including sensitive material, and is intended for adult consumption only. It may not be suitable for all audiences. Therefore, discretion is advised. In 1996, the small town of Rayford in Union County, Florida, is home to around 200 inhabitants. 200 free inhabitants, that is. But if you include the inmates incarcerated in the town's two prisons, the Union Correctional Institution and the Florida State Prison, the population is in excess of 3,000 souls. In September 1996, one of those souls is a man named Otis Toole. Otis Toole is sick in every sense of the word. Physically, he's suffering from hepatitis B and C, possibly complicated by AIDS. His liver is giving up on him. His complexion is jaundiced, his eyes sunken, darkened sockets. His face is haggard and drawn. His abdomen is massively swollen. Otis Toole is dying, and he knows it. Toole was never a good-looking guy. His hooded lids and wandering eye always gave him a shifty, evasive gaze. Before he had his prison dentures fitted, his teeth were an orthodontist's nightmare, with a gaping hole bang in the middle of what passed for his smile. Most photographs of Toole show him with his mouth hanging open, his expression dazed as if he's stoned. By his own account, he frequently was. Once seen, it's not a face you're likely to forget, though you might wish you could. Which brings us on to the other aspect of Toole's sickness, what you might call his moral sickness. Toole is a serial killer. By 1996, he has been convicted of six murders, but he's confessed to many more. In fact, Toole has bragged to police of killing 125 victims, either on his own or in cahoots with another self-confessed serial killer, Henry Lee Lucas. But as Otis Toole lies raving on his sickbed in the Union Correctional Institution Infirmary, one crime more than any other is troubling him. Dear God, I'm very, very sorry. I killed that little boy named Adam Walsh. Six-year-old Adam Walsh went missing on July 27, 1981. He was abducted in broad daylight from the parking lot of a Sears and a shopping mall in the small town of Hollywood, Florida. To this day, no one has ever been convicted of the crime. For Adam's parents, Revae and John Walsh, the day of his disappearance marks the beginning of an unimaginable nightmare from which they can never awake. Somehow, they will find the strength to turn their horrific experience into something positive, but that lies a long way in the future. The tragedy that ripped apart their lives sent shockwaves far beyond their hometown. Before Adam Walsh was killed in 1981, America was a less fearful place. John and Revae Walsh made countless media appearances appealing for help finding their son. Their pain, their tears, their grief was witnessed by the world. The missing poster showing six-year-old Adam posing with a baseball bat was seen by millions. The case struck terror into the hearts of parents everywhere. If it could happen to the Walshes, it could happen to anyone. The crime that Otis Toole confesses to as he lies dying was not just an attack on one defenseless little boy. It was an attack on America's innocence. At the moment of death, 
people often have an overwhelming need to get their biggest secrets off their chests. From murder, fake identities, illicit affairs, and even government cover-ups, this show dives deep into the world's most explosive deathbed confessions. This is the story of Otis Toole, of the words he spoke as he lay dying in a prison infirmary. It's about a crime that shook a small town and shocked a nation. It's about a parent's worst nightmare becoming a reality. About a wholesome dream ripped apart. It's about searching for truth in a deluge of lies. It's about trusted friends coming under suspicion. It's about a desperate search and a horrific discovery. And about the hell that descends one hot Florida summer. I'm Estefania Hagman, and this is Deathbed Confessions. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. The Hargan women seemed to have it all. We were blessed. My mom was amazing. But detectives would soon discover... Inside the house, there were the bodies of two women. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. I am just praying to God this is a sick joke. From 48 Hours, this is Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Imagine you're a fly on the wall at a dinner between the mafia, the CIA, and the KGB. That's where my new podcast begins. This is Neil Strauss, host of To Live and Die in L.A., and I wanted to quickly tell you about an intense new series about a dangerous spy taught to seduce men for their secrets and sometimes their lives. From Tenderfoot TV, this is To Die For. Search To Die For in your podcast app to follow the show. There are no loved ones at Otis Tool's bedside as he faces death. No family members to comfort him. No one to hold his hand. It's hardly surprising. Even if you only believe one-tenth of the things Otis Tool has confessed to, he is a difficult man to love. There are no law enforcement officers present either. The only witness to his final confession is a prison health administrator who Tool is barely aware of. It's fair to say this is unlike all the other confessions Tool has ever made in his life, because now he has nothing to gain. There's no audience, no one to impress, no one to shock. The only thing he can hope to get out of it is forgiveness from a God he has shown little sign of believing in until now. He has confessed to killing Adam Walsh before, only to retract his confession. Perhaps he was afraid of what his fellow inmates would do to a man who admits to murdering little children. But now, he isn't even afraid of that. So maybe this is one confession of his that we really can believe. Perhaps, finally, Otis Tool is ready to set the record straight about Adam Walsh, the blonde-haired little leaguer with the gap-toothed grin, whose abduction and murder rocked a nation. 
Otis Toole first confesses to the murder of Adam Walsh in 1983, after his arrest for arson. He has never been charged with Adam's murder. Over the years, detectives have been unable to back up his numerous confessions with hard physical evidence. And evidence that could now prove his involvement one way or another has been lost. For instance, the car he was allegedly driving when he kidnapped Adam. On top of that, his statements are riddled with inconsistencies and contradictions. He's even been known to go back on his word completely and deny having anything to do with Adam's death or any murder, only to change his mind again and confess once more. Adam Walsh's murder is like a psychic wound he can't stop himself from picking. As Otis Toole lies dying in the prison infirmary, it's clear that his life has taken a toll on him. He's 49, but looks much older. At one time, diagnosed with epilepsy, he's been having seizures ever since he was hit on the head with a rock as a child. Drink and drugs have fueled his chaotic drifting. With an IQ of 75, today we'd say he had learning difficulties. The language back then was more brutal. He also claimed he heard voices. So can we really believe the dying words of a sick, confused man whose grasp on reality has never been strong? U.S. law certainly takes deathbed confessions seriously. In his previous confessions and retractions, Otis Toole has always been under pressure to say what he believed would best serve his interests in the future. Not this time, because now Otis Toole has no future. So there's no reason for him to confess other than to unburden himself. Whether you believe this confession or not is ultimately down to your own judgment. To help you decide, we first have to go back to a day in 1981. The day in question is Monday, July 27th. It's the height of summer in Florida, which means temperature highs run into the 90s with humidity to match. The air is like a hot stifling blanket. At around midday, 30-year-old mom, Revae Walsh, pulls into the parking lot of the Sears Mall in Hollywood, Florida. Revae parks in her usual spot. She's dressed for the gym where she plans on heading later. First, there are a couple of lamps in the Sears sale that she's got her eye on. In her leotard and shorts, she's aware of turning a few heads as she crosses the parking lot. She knows that some of the glances are disapproving, a few furtively admiring. She doesn't care. She keeps her gaze facing forward as she strides confidently across the parking lot. Now and then, she looks down to smile at her six-year-old son, Adam. Adam's dressed for the weather in a brightly striped polo shirt with green shorts and yellow flip-flops. On his head is his favorite captain's hat, pulled down over his ears the way he likes to wear it. He looks up at her with that gappy smile that never fails to melt her heart. Revae Walsh holds on tight to her son's hand. It's that moment in a child's life when the bond with parents is especially strong. They're old enough to be good company, but not too old to be embarrassed by holding hands with mom or dad. They enter the store by their usual entrance, the one that takes them into the toy department. Today, there's a TV blasting out the latest Atari video game, Asteroids. In 1981, video games are the new big thing. This display is a kid magnet. A bunch of boys have already gathered around, they're mostly a bit older than Adam. But though he's sometimes a little shy, he's always seemed old for his age. The boys are taking turns on the Atari. They're excited, but so far at least, they seem good-natured and well-behaved. A bit of jostling here and there, but nothing too out of hand. 
Adam looks up at his mom with his cute smile and those big puppy dog eyes she can never resist. She knows what he's after. He wants to stay in the toy department and play the video game. This is their routine. She knows she can trust Adam not to go wandering off, and besides, she'll only be a few minutes, five tops. Reve agrees, pointing to a nearby aisle. I'm going to be right over there, in the lamp department, Adam. Okay, Mommy, I know where that is. She promises him some ice cream when she gets back. The lamp department is just around the corner from toys, at the end of the aisle on the left. Everything is as it should be. Except they don't have the lamp she wants in stock. So Adam is out of sight for a little longer than she anticipated. Now she's ready to pick up Adam and take him for that ice cream she promised. But when she turns the corner to the toy department, Adam isn't there. None of the kids are. Even the video game music has stopped. The screen blinks silently, expectantly, as it waits for the next player to go. It's weird and a bit unsettling. The once bustling toy department is now virtually deserted. This isn't like Adam, but maybe he's just walked over to one of the other aisles. Adam! Adam? She calls out, rushing up and down the aisles. She turns a corner, willing him to appear. No, not this time. She hurries to the next corner, trying to keep her rising panic under control. She turns around, scanning the store in every direction. Adam is nowhere to be seen. And then, as she frantically searches along the aisles, Reve suddenly catches sight of a little boy wearing a captain's cap just like Adam. It isn't her son. She knows that. This little boy has dark hair. Adam is blonde. And the cap isn't quite the same. But maybe because he's wearing a captain's hat himself, he would have noticed Adam in his? Did you see a little boy wearing a hat like yours? The dark-haired boy nods. Reve's heart beats faster with relief. So, where is he? He doesn't say anything, just points to an entrance on the far side of the toy department. No, that can't be right. Adam would never have gone out that door. They always used the same entrance by the toy department. The little boy must be mistaken. Every parent knows the feeling. If you've got kids, you've probably experienced it yourself. You're in a busy store. You look away from your child for one moment. When you look back, they're gone. Your heart starts to race. And then, you turn a corner and feel the relief surging over you. Your child comes running towards you, arms outstretched. Today, for Reve Walsh, the relief doesn't come. But she has to stay calm. She has to think straight. Adam must still be around there somewhere. Nothing else makes sense. She asks everyone she sees, starting with a clerk in the toy department. Have you seen my son? He was here just a minute ago. No one has. It's as if Adam has disappeared into thin air. Despite the summer heat, Reve begins to feel the ice-cold chill of fear. Reve now goes store to store throughout the mall, showing a photo of Adam that she has in her wallet. It's a school photo, taken in first grade. The pose is a little stiff and self-conscious, so it doesn't look much like the Adam she knows. A happy, warm bundle of love. What's important, though, is that he's wearing the same polo shirt he has on today. Surely, someone must have seen him. But no. 
she is just met with shrugs, blank stares, and shaking heads. The world carries on around her. Cash registers ring up sales. Shoppers rifle through the racks for bargains. It's as if nothing has happened, as if no one can see the increasingly frantic woman desperately searching for her son. Reve has to find a way to get their attention, to make them stop what they're doing and help her find Adam. She speaks to a store worker and demands that they put out an announcement over the PA. Adam Walsh, please come to customer service. No, no, no. How is a six-year-old supposed to understand what customer service means? She makes them do the announcement again, asking Adam to meet her in the toy department. Where she waits and waits and waits. But Adam doesn't come. This episode is brought to you by Amazon Prime. You know Amazon Prime is not just a shipping subscription, right? It's got everything, including streaming TV and movies on Prime Video. And of course, Prime's fast, free shipping. Go from watching your favorite shows to getting your favorite things. Whatever you're into, it's on Prime. Visit Amazon.com slash Prime to get more out of whatever you're into. Everything is a blur now. Reve isn't sure who or when, but at some point someone calls the police. Coincidentally, the Hollywood Police Department is just across the street from the mall. Whatever happened to Adam, it has happened practically under their noses. A couple of patrol cars roll into the mall parking lot with their sirens off. There's no real sense of urgency. The officers get out and just stand around shaking their heads. They don't make eye contact with Reve. Maybe they know something she doesn't. Certainly, they know the kind of men who snatch little boys and the reasons they do it. But they also know that stranger abductions are extremely rare. So maybe it's better just to not go there. Either way, she soon gets the feeling that they're out of their depth. This isn't the kind of thing that happens on their watch. Hollywood, Florida lies about 20 miles north of Miami Beach. It's the kind of small, close-knit community where children play together unsupervised in the park or go over to each other's homes for milk, cookies, and sleepovers. It's a place where neighbors know each other, by sight if not by name. Teenage runaways, yes, but little boys like Adam from a good home with a loving family? Kids like that just don't go missing. The police try to reassure her. He probably just got lost somewhere in the mall. Maybe he's even playing a game hiding to play a prank on his mom. Or maybe he decided to walk home on his own. Reve wants to scream in frustration. All she can do is shake her head. No, it's not possible. None of it is. For one thing, their house is over a mile away from the mall. Adam has no idea how to find his way there. She tries to explain, but they just don't get it. The cops put out a bolo on a white male child, blonde hair, six years old. Bolo. Be on the lookout for. And that's it. They don't interview witnesses. They don't look for evidence. It seems the best they can do is shrug their shoulders and hope that Adam will turn up. But Reve can't just stand by and wait for some roving patrol car to get a sighting of her little boy. She tries to think. What would Adam have done? Maybe something happened that scared him and he's hiding somewhere? She opens a dumpster lid and looks in, 
God knows it's not where she wants to find her little boy. It would be bad enough if he was only hiding, but there's a darker fear starting to form in her mind now, that someone might have hurt Adam and put him there. She closes her eyes on the thought. Hurt him? Or worse? No, she won't think it. She can't think it. That he might be dead. She blocks out the thought by picturing his happy, smiling face. She'll find him before it's too late. Maybe he's hurt. He needs his mom. She'll find him and hold him and make it all better. And she'll never let him go. She'll never let him out of her sight again. She forces herself to look in every dumpster she can find. But she doesn't find him. Understandably, Reve loses all sense of time. She can't say how long she's been looking for Adam now. All she knows is she's not going to leave them all or give up the search until she finds him. In fact, he's been missing for around three hours when at approximately three o'clock, Reve hears her name called and turns to see her husband, John, rushing towards her. It's Adam, John, I can't find Adam. John is a successful marketing executive a businessman used to making things happen and getting results. When things go wrong, he fixes them. The way he sees it, there's no problem that can't be solved, just so long as you keep a cool head and stick to the plan. But something tells him this is a problem even he won't be able to fix. He sees the strain in his wife's face. It's drained of color. She's been crying, which is completely out of character for her. His usual confidence deserts him. In its place, a feeling he isn't used to at all. The word has hardly been in his vocabulary until now. Fear. It starts to get dark. The store will be closing soon. A terrible realization dawns on the parents of Adam Walsh. At some point, they will have to leave. Without their son. At some point, they will have to go home without Adam. But they can't bring themselves to do that just yet. They decide to go over to the police station instead. On the way, they check the family car in the parking lot to see if Adam is waiting for them there. He isn't, of course, but maybe he will find his way back there. They open the car up and make a little bed for Adam in the back seat with his favorite blanket. They leave a note in the windshield Adam, stay in the car. Mommy and Daddy are looking for you. At the police station, John Walsh deals with his fear the only way he knows, by demanding action. If there was ever a time for John to throw his weight around and start yelling at people, it's now. What are they waiting for? Why aren't they out there looking for his son? Who's in charge here? Whether it's John's demands or simply the amount of time that's passed, Adam has been missing for over six hours now. It seems the police finally start to realize the severity of the situation. The operation steps up a gear. By nighttime, the search for Adam gets underway in earnest. A rescue helicopter circles the sky, the powerful beam of its searchlight cutting through the darkness. The police are out with tracker dogs. A boat scours the waterways. 
Friends and neighbors trudge through the streets, knocking on every door. A human chain walks shoulder to shoulder across the golf course. And Reve Walsh rides the neighborhood on her bike, going down every blind alleyway calling out for her son. Adam? Adam! Despite everyone's best efforts, Adam is not found that night, nor in the days that follow. For John and Reve, the possibility that someone has taken their precious son becomes a certainty. With help from friends, they put together a reward for Adam's return. They create a missing poster. It features a shot of Adam in a red and white baseball hat holding a bat. The distinctive gap where he's missing a tooth is clearly visible. Soon, this photo will be burned in the minds of everyone in America. John writes the copy for the poster himself. It includes the message, we are willing to negotiate ransom on any terms. Strict confidentiality. Do not fear revenge. We will not prosecute. We only want our son. If desired, contact any radio or TV station, newspaper, or any other media as a neutral party for negotiations or information. Do not fear revenge. We want Adam home. But no one comes forward. Even though the Walshes keep upping the reward until it reaches a staggering $100,000, it will be two years before anyone admits to knowing anything about Adam Walsh's disappearance. And that someone will be Otis Toole. But before that happens, the Walsh's nightmare will turn even darker, and the pain they have felt will be nothing compared to what is to come. The police know that with every day that passes, the chances of finding six-year-old Adam Walsh alive diminish. Even if he is still alive, by now he could have been taken across multiple state lines. He could be hundreds of miles away from the mall where he was abducted. For Adam's parents, John and Reve, the possibility of never being reunited with their son is not one they are willing to acknowledge. No one sleeps in the Walsh family home. Friends, family, and well-wishers move in, offering support in turning the house into an unofficial center of operations. The Walshes work hard to get the message out there and to keep Adam's name in the news. They get themselves on as many networks as they can. The missing posters are distributed far and wide. Pretty soon, their efforts start to get results. The Hollywood PD is overwhelmed with tips and potential leads. On Wednesday, July 29th, two days after Adam's disappearance, a Hollywood police spokesman releases a chilling statement to the papers. I think it's time we hit the waterways hard. If he's in the water, this is when he'd come up. The following day, detectives receive their first solid lead. A witness reports they saw a dark blue van with tinted windows cruising the Sears parking lot the afternoon Adam went missing. Then the police speak to two children who confirm this sighting. They even say they saw the driver, a white male about six feet tall, drag Adam into the van. There's another call saying the same thing. Another child, a 10-year-old boy, says he saw Adam being forced into a dark blue van. The police focus on finding the blue van and its driver. They appeal to more witnesses who saw the vehicle to come forward. Every driver of a blue van comes under suspicion. 
one witness didn't see a blue van in the parking lot on July 27, 1981, but he did see something. Bill Missler is waiting for an old lady to move her car so he can park his truck. When he sees a white Cadillac with a black vinyl top moving towards him, he watches the caddy park. The driver gets out, an odd-looking guy with gappy teeth and a wandering eye. Missler notices with disgust the man's filthy T-shirt. He sees the man approach a little boy who's standing on the sidewalk. The two don't look like they belong together, but the boy doesn't seem afraid. After a moment, the man takes the boy by the arm and leads him off towards his car. The boy jumps in the driver's side and clambers across. The man gets in after him. Just then, a parking space frees up for Missler and he pulls in. He's distracted as the Cadillac drives away. He forgets about what he's seen until he hears about Adam Walsh's disappearance in the news. But Bill Missler doesn't call the police. The reason is he's been in trouble with the law himself. He's a respectable businessman now and doesn't want his criminal past catching up with him. Besides, he's seen all the announcements about a blue van driver. That's who the police are looking for. That's who took the little boy. Not the odd-looking guy in the black-on-white Cadillac. What Missler doesn't know, and what the police don't know either, is that a disturbed drifter called Otis Tool has access to a white Cadillac with a black vinyl top. And a few days before Adam Walsh's disappearance, he took it from the compound where it was parked. Blue van or white Cadillac, either way, the police now believe they are dealing with an abduction. The lead detective on the case, Jack Hoffman, tells the press, This is not the type of child to just walk off, but we don't have any clues whatsoever what the motive would be. Days later, he would have not just a motive, but also a prime suspect. And it would turn out to be someone close to John, Reve, and Adam Walsh. Someone so close that they're almost a member of the family. It's the second week after Adam's disappearance. A detective from Miami Beach is invited to help the Hollywood PD in their investigation. His name is Joe Matthews, and he has a special skill. Joe Matthews is an expert in polygraph tests. John and Reve Walsh will do anything to get their son back. So when they're asked to take polygraph tests, they agree in the blink of an eye. The result is clear. Neither played any part in their son's disappearance. Matthews also tests close family friend Jimmy Campbell, who until recently was living with the Walshes. In the course of the polygraph test, Matthews discovers that Campbell and Reve Walsh had an affair which ended just before Campbell moved out. When Matthews shares this information with case lead Jack Hoffman, Hoffman can barely contain his excitement. It's as clear as day, insists Hoffman. Campbell's banging the wife, Walsh finds out, throws his ass out, and the guy catches the kid to get back at him. As far as he's concerned, he has his motive and he has his man. The police press Campbell hard, but he insists he had nothing to do with Adam Walsh's abduction. Then, two weeks to the day after Adam's disappearance, a shocking development takes the investigation into dark new territory. Two fishermen near the sleepy hamlet of Vero Beach, 136 miles north of Hollywood, make a grisly discovery. They find the partial remains of a child floating in a drainage canal that runs alongside the turnpike. If the remains are Adam's, 
as the police believe, then this is no longer a case of abduction. It's murder. And Hollywood Assistant Chief of Police Leroy Hessler is convinced that Jimmy Campbell is the one behind it. We know he did it, he tells polygraph expert Joe Matthews. And I want a confession. Hessler will eventually get the confession he wants. But it won't come from Jimmy Campbell. It will come when Otis Tool starts talking to detectives after being picked up for an unrelated crime. Joe Matthews will never get the opportunity to subject Tool to a lie detector. But in a court of law, a deathbed confession has more standing than any polygraph test. Next week on Deathbed Confessions. The Vero Beach remains are identified. Otis Tool sets his life on fire. Witnesses place a notorious serial killer at the Hollywood Mall. And the father of a psychopath places a call to the father of a murder victim. For more information on Otis Tool and the murder of Adam Walsh, amongst the many sources we used, we found Tears of Rage by John Walsh, Bringing Adam Home by Les Standiford and Joe Matthews, and Stalking Otis Tool, a Southern Gothic by Tim Gilmore, extremely helpful to our research. Deathbed Confessions is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser. Executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes. Developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast. Series produced by Addison Nugent. Written by Roger Morris. Music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley. Sound design by Tom Pink. Mix master by Kian Ryan Morgan. <laughs>